Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores the stories, the science, and the secrets of behavioral science. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We are lucky enough to talk to some of the leading experts in the world about their research and the insights that they discover. And the best part is that we get to share those conversations with you. Ooh, and today's Ooh. guest is extra special. Do you know why, Tim? I think I do, but let me hear why you think he's special first. <laughs> <laughs> well, not only did our guest write a paper on a subject that we're particularly fond of, extrinsic motivation, or as we like to refer to it in the, in the industry, rewards and incentives. Oh, yeah. But this, his research supports the hypothesis that we've both had on this topic for many, 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 many years. It does indeed support that hypothesis. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That kind of <laughs> begs the question. You don't suppose, you don't suppose that we like this because it's like a confirmation bias thing, do you? Oh, oh I hadn't <laughs> thought about that, but maybe, maybe it's playing a role in this. But no, no, no. Damn it. The research is just so damn good. <sighs> I, I can't be. It can't be confirmation bias. Okay, it is. And we're. it is really good. And we <laughs> oh, are I thought gonna, you were going to say it is confirmation no, bias. Well. <laughs> well, this particular piece of research is fantastic. And our conversation today is with Indranil Goswami. He's the, an assistant professor at the University of Buffalo. And the research that we're talking about is his paper with Oleg Erminsky, and it's called The Dynamic Effect of Incentives on Post-Reward Task Engagement. Okay. Boring title, but really cool research. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and what Tim and I are so excited about is that this paper shows that incentives don't have a negative long-term impact on intrinsic motivation, and that they may even have a net positive effect when you look out over a long enough time frame. Yeah, which is what we've been telling companies for years. Mm -hmm. And now with confirmation bias in full swing, <laughs> we can actually have proof to back it up. Well, well, Tim, we've always had proof, just not published research article proof like this. Yeah, uh, that's very true. Actually, we, we both have good data to support it, yeah. uh, but unpublished. Yes. Unpublished data. And now it's published and it's in a famous research journal. There you go. All right. Yeah. Well, should we probably get on with the show? Yes, let's do. Uh, so sit back, folks, with your favorite non-intrinsic reducing incentive cocktail and listen to our conversation with Indranil Gaswami. Indranil Goswami, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you so much, Tim, Kurt, and Mary. I'm glad to be here. We are very, very glad to have you here. And we'd like to get started with a, a quick question here. Would you prefer coffee or tea? Tea. Tea. That was nice. A, yeah, not, not the coffee drinker. Okay. Perfect. So here is the second of our speed round questions. Would you rather have a relaxing day at the beach or an active adventure in the mountains? Active adventure in the mountains. Oh, yeah. You're not, the, not the beach sitting around. I'm not the beach guy. Yeah. I, I don't like <laughs> okay. sand sticking, sticking in my feet. <laughs> great. That's great. Love it. The sticky sand is no fun. Okay. So if let's imagine this. You could have dinner with any two researchers, dead or alive, any two researchers in the world for dinner. Who would you want to share a conversation with? Maybe... Danny Kahneman and Danny Reilly. Oh, yeah. Wow. And happily, they're both both alive. So that, that could happen. Yeah. Any listeners who want to get that to happen for Andrano will have that happen there. So thank you. Okay. So this last question, hopefully you'll have an answer for us because this is kind of a big thing here. So is it true that extrinsic incentives always suppress intrinsic motivation? The answer is uh, no. <laughs> Good, good. And that's not only based on my research, but it is also based on past research. And the research which has been done for like almost four decades does not uh, unambiguously say that extrinsic rewards would always kind of, uh, you know, reduce intrinsic motivation. The research actually is kind of pretty ambiguous about what the conclusions are. And in fact, there are different types of, you know, factors, for example, you know, the type of rewards whether it is verbal rewards versus, you know, whether it is tangible money uh, and stuff like that, which affects subsequent motivation and behavior. Yeah. So 
the answer is uh, no. <laughs> Which is good because we wanted to talk to you about that research that you've done as well as the other research that's gone on this. In particular about the paper that you wrote with Olga Minsky called The Dynamic Effect of Incentives on Post-Reward Task Engagement, which to to Tim and me, we, we really loved because, again, as you mentioned, there's been four decades of research out there about this. But the popular kind of opinion or common wisdom that kind of has been prevalent, at least in industry, maybe even I think in some of the research industry, is that you know what, extrinsic rewards reduce subsequent intrinsic motivation, or that's the thought, you know, they've had everything from Alfie Cohn to some of the other Mm. pieces that have gone out and kind of gotten popular press on this. But tell us a little bit about that research and what you discovered. Yes, you're right. I mean, there is this very popular uh, belief that extrinsic rewards would reduce intrinsic motivation, although the research is, I mean, the literature is kind of um, not very clear on that. Um, And one of the reasons why um, this kind of a conclusion has taken kind of, you know, is kind of so popular is because there's this meta-analysis, so to speak, a kind of an analysis of all the studies which were done probably until 1999, which I think is almost two, two and a half decades, which kind of says, yes, it does reduce intrinsic motivation. And I think many of those authors, which you mentioned, kind of took the cue from that and kind of, you know, developed that into maybe books and theses. But what, I mean, one reason, I mean, the question is, how do you, uh, you know, uh, kind of make sense of this literature, right? I mean, yeah. uh, uh, and the other thing, which is also important to understand is uh, there are these two streams of work on incentives, one primarily done by the psychologists and other, as you can imagine, uh, is uh, done by the economists, right? And in economics, incentives are like a huge kind of, you know, liver, which can affect behavior. And economics, economists would love to believe that, you know, okay, you give incentives, people do the behavior more. You remove incentives, they would just go back to what they were doing before the incentives. Why should they reduce doing what they were earlier doing at a certain level, right? And indeed, many of the experiments, particularly field experiments, which were run by economists, actually found that in the longer run, by which I mean in the post-incentive period, maybe, you know, after six months, you know, uh, you give people incentives for stopping to smoke. And then after six odd months, they find people essentially either kind of do a little better than what they were doing before the incentives were introduced, or maybe they are kind of pretty much at the same level. They go back to what they were doing, right? So clearly, uh, that is inconsistent with this extremely uh, you know, strong belief that incentives are harmful. What I do in my uh, dissertation, actually, is uh, study this uh, behavior, particularly the post-reward behavior, which is where you know all the action is, so to speak, <laughs> uh, because okay. it is kind of uh, understood that incentives would work when the incentives are present. That is, they would actually you know improve behavior, particularly for certain type of tasks. So I also uh, should mention that there are certain other tasks where incentives might be harmful when they are present. That is, they might reduce people's behavior and engagement when they are present compared to when they were not even there. For example, pro-social behavior, Mm. right? When you're thinking of, you know, helping others. If I pay you to help others, you might uh, start thinking that maybe uh, if an onlooker uh, understands that I am being paid to help, they would infer that I'm not really a, you know, altruistic person, but I'm actually doing this behavior only because I'm being paid. And that's not a good signal about myself. So I would rather not do uh, this pro-social act during the time when the reward is present, uh, just to kind of make sure that I bolster my, you know, uh, self-presentation, right? So that that's that's a different kind of task. But yeah. we essentially look at tasks where there are no, you know, self-presentation motives, where there is no pro-social angle and stuff like that. Like in the world of sales incentives, for instance. Absolutely, sales incentives is one great example. Similarly, incentives for you know going to the gym, for example, mm. right? incentives for kind of, you know, uh, reading a book, for example, right? Those kind of stuff would be in this kind of a paradigm, Would was used in this kind of a paradigm. Yeah, this topic of, as you said, the, the post-incentive sort of where all the action is, right? This is kind of the exciting part of it. And this is something that Kurt and I have looked at for, for many years. Conversations with Ron Kivitz in the early 
2000s, you know, there was a lot of discussion about that post incentive pause, you know, that moment that immediately following the incentive, there's a drop off, but then this return to this higher level of, or at least, you know, pre incentive rates or oftentimes even better. And, and I'm wondering, this has been something that sales managers have sort of bought into economically for many years. Why is it, it seems like it hasn't been studied all that much in the academic world. Why, why do you think that is in drama? So it's primarily a function of the experimental design, right? I mean, the thing is, uh, as I said, right, there are these two broad silos, if you will, one uh, comprised of the economists and the other of uh, the psychologists. They have used very different paradigms. So for the psychologists, what they have essentially done, mostly done, is they would look at behavior immediately following the reward period. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's called kind of a free choice paradigm, where all you do is you remove the incentives and then you kind of understand, okay, to what extent are you spontaneously, voluntarily engaging in the task which were incentivized in the prior period, so to speak. And there, if you think about it, people are essentially making one decision. That is whether to kind of, you know, continue doing the task or whether to do something else, right? In that paradigm, you cannot really distinguish whether there is a momentary disengagement from the task or there is kind of a persistent disengagement from the task. That one decision would often manifest as some kind of a disengagement, but the conclusion which often is derived from that behavior is that disengagement is persistent. That is, people would actually not you know, be willing to do this task as much as they were doing in the pre-reward period. In contrast to this, uh, the economists who have primarily run field experiments, and as you can understand, in field experiments, you don't have too much control, right? You essentially kind of understand that you're going to operate in a noisy world and you try to make the best draw the best inferences you can. So there, you often look at behavior after, you know, a certain point in time. You don't really study behavior immediately after the rewards and, you know, systematically. Uh, So after six odd months, as I said, or after even, for example, an year, you see, okay, people are actually, you know, reading books as much as they were reading in the pre-incentive period. And therefore, there is no detrimental long-term effect. What I did is essentially I kind of married these two paradigms uh, and I actually tracked behavior, you know, moment by moment, if you will. So essentially people are making multiple decisions about whether to engage in the task, which is beneficial for them in the uh, longer run, but clearly, uh, you know, requires certain amount of, you know, uh, effort and self-control to uh, do it. But uh, given that there is benefits, people appreciate and understand that and they would be willing to engage in the task at some level without incentives as well. Mm. That's an important precondition actually because if there is no willingness at all to uh, engage in the task without rewards, then essentially you are, at, yeah, essentially you are, there is nothing to improve uh, and there is no possibility for you to, I, I should say this, uh, okay, let me rephrase this part. If there is no intrinsic motivation at all to start with, that is, people are not willing to engage in the task without any rewards, rewards might help, you know, increase engagement, but there is no opportunity for somebody to do less than what they were doing in the country. <laughs> they Beautifully can go back said. To, yes. Uh, yes. Not doing it. Can't all, do less right? than zero, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's an important precondition. There should be some level of engagement without rewards. And all I do is essentially have people choose between this task and an outside option or an alternative task, which is much more, you know, leisure-like, right? Which is kind of what people would like to do. They would like to, you know, sit and watch TV rather than go to the gym, right? So that kind, that is the kind of, you know, real world, if you will, uh, scenario which I abstracted in, in this experimental paradigm. And people made these choices multiple times. So I have multiple choices before the incentives was introduced. I introduced the incentive. And then uh, after a few trials, when they made those choices with with incentives, I then have a set of uh, trials or choices without incentives. Okay, And and with this, what I can do is I can understand uh, if there is a dip 
after uh, the incentives are withdrawn, uh, is that dip persistent or is that dip temporary? So that dynamic, that is why I call this a dynamic effect of incentives on post-reward behavior. That dynamics was completely uh, conspicuous in its absence, uh, that study of the dynamics, which I, I kind of introduce in my paradigm. The other things, I mean, these are kind of technical things, but uh, I mean, as you understand, whenever we run experiments and controlled experiments, we are very mindful of, you know, confounds, mm-hmm. which often, uh, you know, is very difficult to control in a uh, field experiment. And that's actually kind of the uh, pro for a lab experiment or a controlled experiment versus a field experiment. So I actually also uh, ensure that people know in advance that this reward is temporary. Because you can imagine that if people are taken by surprise that, you know, uh, the reward is withdrawn, they might be disappointed Mm -hmm. and stuff like that, right? So so there are several other alternatives, for example, uh, this disappointment or, for example, you know, inferences which people make about rewards. Why uh, are you suddenly rewarding this task? Is it that you believe that people will not engage in this task without rewards? Or Uh uh, so it's kind of a not a good interesting tasks uh, and people if people kind of you know try to predict the motive of the policy maker that might actually you know be reflected in their post incentive uh, behavior right so those are the kind of things which we can control and what we find very consistently is uh, there is indeed a dip immediately after the rewards are withdrawn the dip is very temporary we call it the momentary crowding out and subsequently uh, the engagement returns back to baseline. And in some situations, it can even actually climb at a level higher than the baseline uh, level, which is by which I mean the pre-incentive level. Yeah. So Cameron, Eisenberger, and Pierce had done a lot of work in the 90s, early 2000s. Again, to this point, they kind of looked at it, I think, differently. And, and, and correct me if I'm, if I'm misquoting some of this stuff, but my understanding is they were looking more at the design of the incentive. In other words, how you earn the incentive thus influenced how well or how that impacted your subsequent behavior on this. And the idea, again, of you know, does the incentive design demonstrate mastery? Does it you know, bring in other factors that are are, uh, self-identity building type elements into this world. I was wondering if your research, did it parse out anything about the incentive design or were you just looking, you know, as you mentioned, you you had the pre, you had the incentive element that came in and then you you measured the post multiple times, which again is, is beautiful. Love that idea, you know, that process. But did you look at the incentive design at all in this or was there, or can you make any assumptions about that based upon what you've, you've discovered if you did not? Um, so uh, incentive design is actually a very big uh, kind of subject. I did not, my focus was not so much on incentive design. My focus was more on the fundamental question of whether incentives affects and how post-reward behavior in terms of incentive design, what I did is I actually varied the incentives, mm. right? So I used kind of, you know, um, low versus high incentives. And as you can imagine, if you're using high incentives, many of the psychological theories would actually predict a stronger detrimental effect after the incentives are withdrawn, right? Yes. Because people would think, oh my God, I was doing this task because of this high incentive and not really, maybe not because I really like the task. Or because, you know, high incentives act as, act as a reference point. Yeah. Right? And people would think, I have this reference point now and therefore I should actually, uh, you know, not do this task unless there is some form of compensation commensurate with that reference point. What I find actually, again, very interesting and kind of very different from what the predictions from the psychological theories would be is yeah. with high incentives, actually there might not be any post-reward crowding out at all. People might actually think that, you know, they actually had this great opportunity of working uh, with this high incentive. And because the incentives were so high, they kind of feel that psychologically, this is a very psychological mechanism, that they feel that they actually are in kind of, you know, uh, in a state of balance, Mm. so to speak. They are not really, you know, giving up much 
to kind of you know hmm. exert the extra effort during the incentive period and therefore they feel less justified so to speak to kind of you know take a break uh, after the incentives are withdrawn and therefore uh, you know after the incentives are withdrawn there is indeed a dip they go back to the pre incentive level but they don't really go back below the pre incentive level and in the longer run uh, actually higher incentives results in higher net engagement with the task which is actually uh, again an important con- thing Uh, for policymakers to know, I believe. So this is really interesting. When you started talking about high and low conditions, my first thought was the large stakes and big mistakes paper, Dan Ariely and George Lowenstein, um, mm-hmm. Nina Majar, where you know they found that it's it's possible to get to a certain point in with an incentive that you can cause choking. Like the incentive mm-hmm. can be too much of a burden. Yeah. Obviously, you're not in that range, but the high versus low, right? But what you are saying is that the high incentive does lead to a better engagement, of higher levels of productivity and performance in the long run. That is true. That there might be an for the business side of me says there might be an ROI, right? There might actually be a, a value proposition for managers to think about higher rates of incentive in order to promote longer term. Benefit is that correct, Indrano? That is correct. You are right when you said that my incentives are not in that range. I think that's <laughs> the most that's the most okay uh, kind of succinct and appropriate way to put it. Yes, if I give people kind of an astronomical amount of money for doing the task uh, and getting the task right, clearly uh, there is a possibility people would kind of you know choke. Yeah, uh, their performance might suffer, but. Uh, i don't i'm not in that range i essentially use high incentives but reasonable amount the other thing to uh, the other part of your question was yes absolutely in fact what we find is even with low incentives right even with any incentives what people or what policymakers and what managers should consider is the net effect of incentives what is the level of performance in the reward period plus the post reward period vis-a-vis the pre reward period right that's essentially the key comparison and there we find incentives uh, in my experiments even low incentives have a positive net effect which essentially means that incentives are useful for mm-hmm. improving uh, people's behavior engagement performance if you think of this as a long term policy it also reminds me we had a conversation with yana galas from the Anderson School in UCLA. Right, right. Uh, now, now her focus is more on design, you know, right. and and the design of incentives and sort of the appropriateness of of the design, you know, pro-social, um, tangible, non-tangible, whole whole variety of things there. But something that kind of strikes me about this is that even in these low incentive situations, it does seem like managers in the in the real world in the wild are not doing a good job of looking at the entire breadth of the performance, that they're looking at what happened during the reward period and not necessarily looking at what happens in the following one month, three months, six months, year, et cetera. Has any of your work been able to get out into, into real-world experiences, into, into field experiments with, with this work? So we have done some field experiments uh, ourselves particularly uh, regarding you know healthy food choices and there again uh, what we f- find is so what we do in this experiment is we partner with a cafeteria uh, we study the baseline purchases of you know uh, soups salads uh, and stuff like that we get the data directly from the company and then for a few weeks we actually incentivize purchase of these you know healthy items by giving them like a $1 coupon right mm-hmm. so essentially the price is reduced by $1 essentially and then after a few weeks we reduce uh, sorry we don't reduce we remove the reward okay. and then we study uh, the purchase of these products and there again what we find is there is indeed a decrease in purchase of uh, these items immediately after the incentives is stopped because you know people probably and this is a cafeteria in a university so it actually has a very if you will captive audience they know that the incentives were present and now the incentives are withdrawn that kind of stuff so there is a effect after the rewards are withdrawn uh, but uh, subsequently it goes back to the control con- uh, the control level and indeed there is a net positive effect of introducing this 
coupons and spending the additional money on uh, you know people's purchase behavior or for healthy foods yeah. so that's a, uh, that's the field experiment we have done using this kind of a paradigm yeah your research and this this paper i think are really important to kind of highlight some of these facts that uh, again go against some of that common wisdom that has been prevalent out there, at least has been gotten a lot of popular press in various different pieces. Where do you see in this arena where the research, where you think the research needs to go? What are some of the questions that are still unanswered around incentives, around their long-term impact, around, you know, the different aspects that might come into play around, again, as you said, policymakers and decision makers who are implementing these in their organizations where should the research be focused over the next five years to really help and inform and make sure that we're getting appropriate insights and we're thus creating incentives that are going to be the best possible incentives across the board? That is actually a very important question. So a couple of things. I mean, one is, uh, of course, uh, I think organizations across different you know industries need to try incentives. That's, I think, the first thing. Because, I mean, currently... There is such a strong kind of, you know, uh, aversion to incentives. I mean, uh, let me uh, give an example of a real world situation I actually faced. Uh, so I was actually talking to an NGO and this was in India. They actually uh, work with malnourished children uh, and they provide these food supplements, which apparently would improve the health of, you know, uh, the children, uh, the young children. And I actually suggested, okay, uh, and they were, of course, trying to increase the uptake of these supplements. And I suggested, okay, why don't we kind of, you know, incentivize them to kind of, you know, use this supplement. And they were like, no, 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 this is completely a, a bad idea because if you incentivize them, they will not buy this anymore at all after the incentives are withdrawn, right? So <laughs> clearly they have this very strong belief that consistent with what many of the psychologists would like to believe uh, that uh, there is this detrimental effect in the post-reward setting. So I think the first important thing is they should, companies should not be afraid of trying incentives and it would help them uh, if they can, you know, track uh, the behavior in a more systematic manner rather than kind of, you know, the behavior, uh, you know, in kind of, you know, after six months or something, which probably will not reveal the true picture. So that's number one. The other thing which I think is important to understand is, okay, uh, all the research which I have done at least, most of the studies which I have run have found that there is kind of a reversal back to baseline, Mm -hmm. right? Or control or or, or the pre-incentive level. I think the important question is, can we design incentives which can actually improve Mm. post-reward performance vis-a-vis the baseline level, right? I think that would be super interesting to, or important as well, uh, to to policymakers and managers because they would like to see people doing the task more than what they were doing earlier by virtue of, you know, greater engagement during a temporary reward period, right? Uh, So there, I think, work on, I think we should kind of try to see the work on habit formation, how habits are formed and stuff like that. And try to design incentives which kind of, you know, uh, uses those insights and potentially would result in kind of a long-term positive effect. So the net effect of incentives would be stronger, hopefully, in these situations uh, than what, you know, it would happen if you just introduce incentives. As I said, the net effect is always positive in my studies, at least, whenever you use incentives. But the question is, can we increase the net effect? I think that, I think, is an important area Uh, which uh, needs to be looked at. And the third thing is, uh, kind of related point is, when you're talking about incentive design, uh, not all incentives need not be tangible incentives, right? Mm. Incentives could also be non-tangible. For example, you know, some kind of recognition and stuff like that. So how does that actually affect people's uh, subsequent behavior? I mean, is it the case that, non-tangible incentives are kind of better integrated, so to speak, and people kind of, you know, perform better, who knows, in the longer term because of that recognition or whatever non-tangible incentives they got. So I have some studies where I find that praise and also what I call performance internalization, by which I kind of mean, you know, uh, reflecting on 
how much you did during the reward period, right? I mean, uh, think of a task like going to the gym. Uh, you were incentivized to go to the gym. You responded to the incentives. You went to the gym. You know, you went to the gym more during the incentive period. Now, when the incentives are withdrawn, instead of just withdrawing it and saying, "Okay, goodbye, uh, no incentives anymore," uh, why not we? Why don't we kind of you know, engage the person? Say, "Okay, uh, there were incentives." you used to go to the gym at this level in the pre incentive period you went to the gym at uh, this high level during the incentive period how do you feel about it how proud you are about your performance how likely do you think you will repeat this behavior after this period and stuff like that those uh, you know probing and deliberations might actually incentivize people or uh, not incentivize in the economic sense but kind of motivate people to you know persist with the task so those are i think the areas which i believe looks uh, needs further investigation okay indranil we've got like 90 more questions to talk about just from what you just said but, <laughs> but let me just say this we're going to be in touch for a long time because <laughs> we we want to hear what happens with all of that i want to reflect specifically on the second item this idea of what can the designers of these incentives do better to engage people in the post-reward scenario. And I think that this is a really wonderful challenge to practitioners to start thinking about what can they do to design, not just for the incentive period, but to actually be be thinking about the kind of impact that they want to have post-reward. Kurt, have you seen that in the wild? Have Have you seen... No, Anyone doing I that? haven't. And I'm, I, I wrote a whole bunch of stuff down here going, <laughs> all right, this is an interesting concept. To your point, I think that this is a really key aspect of what we could be looking at in the future to say, hey, how yeah. can we drive, improve the way that we not only design the incentives themselves, but the communication and the follow-up and the other activities that surround that incentive in order to increase uh, the the net effect, as Andrano, as you were saying on that. So uh, fantastic stuff. I know we have a limited amount of time. We had a couple other of your papers that we wanted to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything? So just real quick, in a short kind of period, help us understand, uh, you, you sent us a couple other papers, Don't Fear the Meter, how, long time, how Longer Time Limits Bias Managers to Prefer Hiring with that verse, with Flat Fee Compensation. Help us understand what that is really quickly and kind of the key concept out of out of that paper. Putting you on a spot, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Probably only took like five years to create that paper and just <laughs> summarize it in, let's say, two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, that's a good challenge to have. So uh, the idea is, you know, um, there is uh, some literature suggesting people prefer, you know, a uh, flat fee uh, or, you know, uh, flat uh, payment schemes, yep. uh, so to speak. For example, you know, think about this. Our cell phone plans often are kind of, you know, flat payments, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Likewise, yeah. Uh, there is research suggesting that if you are thinking of gym membership, people prefer to pay a flat fee rather than kind of per visit fee because it might actually, you know, uh, motivate them to visit the gym more often because they are often, they are almost like, you know, pre-committing to kind of, you know, exercise self-control, if you will, right? What we find is in uh, hiring scenarios, uh, particularly when you're hiring temporary workers, managers have this preference for flat fee payment schemes, by which I essentially mean kind of a piece rate payment scheme, right? Do the work, get this amount of fixed amount of money, particularly when the deadline for doing the task is longer, uh, right? So that's essentially what we find. And uh, what we show is it's a suboptimal preference uh, because managers are essentially going to lose money by uh, making that employment choice. What uh, we do in our studies, and uh, uh, this is beyond your two minutes time limit, uh, is... Uh, <laughs> it's go for okay. it, go for yeah, it. Yeah, 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 this is good. <laughs> yeah, so what we do in our studies is we actually have participants play the role of workers and then we actually measure their actual time, mm. okay? Because mm. we need their actual task completion times under different incentive schemes. And then we have managers who are, you know, again, participants playing the role of managers, to be more precise, make hiring decisions where they are given a certain amount of budget 
and they uh, would incur cost for hiring the employee and the rest of the money that is the budget minus the cost which they incur is actually their bonus which would be given to them for real mm. right so it's uh, it's kind of a consequential decision if you will and given that we have the actual time of the workers uh, what we do is if you make if you choose a permanent meaning essentially a worker who was incentivized you know using a metered payment scheme if you choose that kind of a worker we are going to couple a randomly chosen worker from our pool of workers with that manager and use the actual time taken by that worker to decide how much bonus the manager would make likewise if you choose a flat fee compensation scheme we would couple uh, from our uh, pool of workers uh, a, a worker who worked under that kind of a scheme and uh, use his or her time to compute the bonus for this manager uh, so what we find is based on this kind of a elaborate design we find that using the actual time the workers took to do the tasks uh, managers actually are going to earn much less when they are choosing flat fee compensation scheme and just to kind of talk about the psychology a little bit Uh, the idea is often what happens is people kind of underestimate how you know intrinsically motivated again kind of going back to our previous yeah, topic right. people are people often think that people uh, are not very intrinsically motivated people are very self interested uh, and stuff like that and therefore you know when you pay people by time using like a metered scheme they might potentially you know slack mm-hmm. uh, they mm-hmm. might actually take a lot of time to you know earn more Uh, and stuff like that and the other thing which we also find is kind of a cognitive bias that when the deadlines are longer people think that task or the scope of the work is actually bigger and therefore they feel uh, that given this is a bigger task people uh, it would even if people don't slack uh, workers would end up taking more time ah. uh, and therefore it would cost me more if i pay them per time versus if i pay them like a flat fee right so that's essentially the psychology behind what we uh, observe and uh, the consequence as i said is a suboptimal decision and economic loss for the managers you know what's fascinating about that is is as a as a small business owner and that i hire in contract workers i, I fit into your presumption right away right i much prefer hiring somebody on a fixed contract that you will do x and i will pay you y as opposed to you do y and i'll pay you x amount per hour in order to get that done. And so now right. i'm just i'm rethinking how i <laughs> how i go about doing this. And so i might i might have to do a field experiment to my own on this and just kind of see what what we have what we find out. So you should. <laughs> and the other other thing to uh, mention here is uh, think about you know uh, a real world situation, right? I mean often what happens is you engage with the same worker multiple times yes mm-hmm. right so there is an incentive for the worker to build what you might call reputation capital right mm-hmm. so if the worker slacks then clearly uh, you might not hire him again and the worker clearly knows uh, about that consequence so that again would be a further reason why this kind of a flat fee payment scheme Uh, might be a bad decision. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? I love that. Actually, it's it always amazes me this there's this big blind spot especially among sales managers that they're really afraid that people are going to take advantage of them. Like that that the incentive or whatever the payment scheme is that people are going to slack, that they'll be free riders at every turn. When study after study and field data over and over supports the fact that that's extremely rare. But before we I'm afraid we don't have time to get to the the, the last paper but I do want to get a little bit of of your musical tastes you know I, i'm just kind of curious about what do you like to listen to do you let's start how about this let's start here do you like to listen to music while you work i uh, do listen to music all the time when i work wow all the time do you listen to a particular type of music actually yes i mean i my i i must confess that my uh, taste is kind of parochial uh, as far as music is concerned and it's not because i believe something is better than the other but it's only it's essentially a function of my non exposure to other uh, <laughs> so, you just like what you like that's that's okay <laughs> yeah so i'm actually very fond of um, indian music mm-hmm. uh, both 
classical as well as um, oh, kind of uh, the, the uh, as you probably know the term Bollywood. Yeah, yes. you know it goes with Hollywood, that kind of music. Uh, so I listen to that stuff uh, a lot when I work. Um, the thing about Indian classical music, and this is just like, like my two cents, without really being an expert on this subject, is I think Indian classical music is extremely, extremely kind of rich, if you will. I mean, if you think about uh, Ravi Shankar, right? You probably have heard about his name. His music is like kind of a canonical example, if you will, of the classical music which India uh, has. And I think that's very soothing and rich, and I like that. Rich is a great word. I mean, finding the raga and and establishing the raga in, in uh, classical Indian music is such a beautiful thing. And rich is a, is a word that absolutely applies, but doesn't doesn't get spoken of a lot when it comes to um, Indian music. And I, I think that, that that's a great description. Did you grow up with it? Was there a lot of, of Ravi Shankar in your house when you were growing up? Yeah, actually, Ravi Shankar is from the same part of the country where I uh, come from. Ah. Uh, so clearly, Ravi Shankar is a big influence there. So And, and I come from uh, West Bengal, Calcutta. So uh, that part of the country is also kind of very culturally sensitive, if you will. Uh, we listen to a lot of... Uh, songs and music and uh, stuff like that so uh, yes the thing about richness which you mentioned yes and i think the i think what i what amazes me is the grammar of music uh, and how rich that is and how intricate that is as far as uh, you know indian classical music is concerned i'm sure it might be true and it must be true for western classical music as well it has to be true but i don't have any exposure to that but i can pretty much uh, vouch that it is super intricate for Indian music, and yeah. I really am impressed with. Well, there is a, a really stark difference. Uh, the the Western scale is only twelve tones, and the Indian scale is twenty two tones, and that in and of itself is fosters complexity and richness just by having more notes to go from. Kurt, I'm sorry, did I just lose you there? Yeah, 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 I'm just saying that I, you, you guys, you know, both lost me a long time ago. But Tim always loses me on these on these musical components when he starts bringing in the tonal aspects or the time scales that are at you know different time elements and yeah. various different you know elements all of those factors that come into play. But it is fascinating to me too. I think there is an interesting piece. And and the idea that you talked about this grammar of music, I find that that's a just an interesting way of, of thinking about this because there is, right? There is this element of how music is composed that depends upon the the grammar rules that kind of parochial area, as you said, or that type of music has. And so thus it it creates a different a different musical composition. So, yeah. Yeah, true. And I think, um, absolutely. And I think Tim is like an expert in music. I I, I should have educated myself more. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's that's not the point of behavioral grooves in general. <laughs> no, that is not. But we want to thank you very, very much for being a guest today. And we hope that uh, that if, if we invite you back, that you would be generous enough to, to join us in the future. Absolutely, Tim. It was great talking to you and Kurt. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Indranal, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our intrinsically motivated brains, even after we've been extrinsically motivated. <laughs> 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 that was nicely played. Very nicely played, sir. Very nice. I like that. Yeah, that's it. That's the whole thesis. And this is something that I'm so grateful that Indranel and Oleg have done this work so that we can now point to a published story to support the data that we've captured for years. Yeah. And and, and I think what's interesting about this, and, and we we kind of talked about this, right, is that the popular belief that extrinsic rewards would reduce intrinsic motivation kind of dominated the you know both the literature as well as kind of common popular pieces is yeah. that over justification yep. or the undermining effect whatever you want to call it right started with DC and Ryan back in the 70s and the research all the way through the 2000s and you know, it was good research. It was it was replicated. It was sound. And then it got amplified in Dan Pink's book, Drive, right? The DC and Ryan work did. Oh, and Alfie Cohn, uh, you know, who was on Oprah and talking right. about 
Like, I go, don't give your kids, you know, stars for doing, you know, getting an yeah. A. Uh, and, and so all of this. And, and I mean, the, that research was good. It was, it was always there. It was good. It was, it was there. But I always had, always had this inkling, even, you know, basically it started from, from, you know, a lot of the work that we did back in the early 2000s around incentives and other things and seeing how it works in the real world. But I always had this aspect that there were some flaws, that there was maybe some part of the puzzle that we just weren't looking at. And I actually, in for, in my PhD program, I wrote a paper on how intrinsic motivation was operationalized in most of these studies. It was mostly through observation of free time activity, particularly with kids, right? And that observation was immediately following the intervention. But what was interesting is that if you asked the people afterwards, they didn't say that they had a decrease in motivation around doing any of these activities. It wasn't a stated, it wasn't a belief system that had consciously raised, which, you know, you can go back and forth on. That's what we do in, in behavioral sciences go, oh, well, they say something, but then they do something else. Yeah. You, you can't read the label from inside the jar. Right. But I think what this goes to is a, a lot of, you know, this research by Andrano and Oleg kind of shows that maybe that was actually true, right? That they didn't have mm-hmm. a decrease. They were just they didn't want to do it right now. They wanted to do it later, you know? Right. Well, I mean, this this reminds me of, of work that, uh, unpublished work that I did with Ron Kivitz in, in looking at what he called the, the post-incentive pause, mm-hmm. you know? And Kivitz, you know, has collaborated with um, Oleg Erminsky on, mm-hmm. on many papers. They've I know that they've been talking about this for, for years. So I'm so glad that they gathered this data, especially in the way that they did. We'll talk about that yeah. um, in, in a minute. But but this sort of, this really actually kind of confirms there's good scientific reason for us to believe that people don't feel a lack of motivation. They just feel like, I just need a little pause here at the end. Well, and then, then they're going to return to, if not the same level, but a higher level of performance because they built up habits of performing at a higher level during the incentive And that's some of the real world stuff you had. But there was also work even back into the 90s, right? That showed that uh, Cameron and Pierce did a meta-analysis, right? And they looked at 96 studies and they found that overall reward does not decrease intrinsic motivation, (laughs) right? Right. They they said that and yet it still didn't get, you know, that didn't get catch on. Eisenberger and Pierce did research that showed the way the incentives are designed has a huge impact on whether or not this happens. If it's just a do this, get that, then yes. But if it actually, if the incentive design, the way that you earn the reward demonstrates mastery or competence or that you are improving on something, then it didn't have that same effect. And in fact, you know, it could sometimes even show that increase. As you said, they've learned something and now they're applying yep. that learned piece because now it shows demonstrated their competency about this and thus yeah. they are now imparting that at later times and so you can get an increase in that so all of these yeah. things kind of showed this but yet popular opinion general yes. belief out there even many of the you know people that managers that we talk to and i think dan pink's book as much as i love dan right i think yeah. recently kind of reignited that this idea that after $70,000 incentives don't, you know, you shouldn't, you don't have to pay people. It actually decreases because he just went back and looked at DC and Ryan without actually looking at some of these others. So he's a great journalist. He had a great story to tell. And it is regrettable to me as well that there are a lot of people who are like a lot of sales managers who are like, we got to stop any kind of extrinsic incentive because that's going to diminish any kind of performance. And it's like, no, that's actually not right. So I will, I will give this. And if Dan ever listens to the show, I mean, he was on it, but he, I don't know if he listens, but if he does, you know, we should get you back on and talk about this. But you know, what I appreciated about Dan and what Dan's book did drive is that it actually brought the conversation back to intrinsic rewards, which is important as you are thinking about building an incentive system, building a total rewards program, how do you motivate and engage your people? You can't just have that one lever, which is rewards and extrinsic. You do need the intrinsic rewards that are part right. really there. And so his book brought that back into the conversation. I mean, I had specific, I had conversations with CEOs because of that book, because they read it. And then yep. I was brought in kind of as a 
not to say contrary, but to add to that story to say, yes, and yes, and right. So (laughs) it it is. Yes. And okay. Well, let's get back to uh, Indronel's paper. Okay. So I love that they looked at at this over time. I think that this is one of the sort of the magic things about this is that they set it up with, with more than just one test, right? It was more than just here's do this task for 10 minutes and then, and then we're going to measure what happens. You know, the fact that they did this in multiple iterations, I think 30, 30 iterations, I believe. 30 iterations. Yeah. yeah. It really helps. It's like, okay, this isn't just, this is a thing. This really is a thing. Yeah. That's the cool part about it for me. Yeah. And and I loved how they operationalized this, right? So again, I taught, I did that paper on operational and they operational by choice. And so you, you are doing it. And so they set up 30 trials. You chose between watching a video and then doing a, a math test. I, which a I don't I don't understand why anybody would choose the math test, but <laughs> right, that's a that's right. a whole separate thing, right? So then yeah. they they incentivize. So they did that. They had the baseline they set up. I think it was nine or ten of those series. Don't quote me on that. But I do know that they stopped. They started the incentive somewhere around ten, eleven. They stopped it at nineteen, right? And what they saw was that yeah, in in trial number twenty, those people who had been paid did see a drop, but by the 22nd, the 22nd, you know, trial, it was back up to baseline. It was back up to the original piece. It took three, three times, three, three iterations. That's it. That's it. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a long, it didn't have to go 10. You didn't, you know. Mm -mm. This is the magic. This is just to, to watch how this goes. And, and you and I have seen this in incentive program after incentive program. When we look at uh, the, the pre-conditioned data to see what the average baseline of activity is among, uh, among reps, and then how they perform during the incentive period, and then what happens immediately after that. Yeah. And there is consistently this, this pause, that, as Kivitz would say, this post-incentive pause. There's a break because they're kind of, you know, it's like, man, I, I worked really hard during this, this period. But then we see Within days, they're right back up on it because guess what? They still have objectives to meet. They still have a job. There's still things to do. In the work world, work doesn't stop. You can't just stop working. So they jump back on the horse. And as you alluded to earlier, they've learned new techniques. They've learned new things. They've built up new habits. They're, they're used to performing at a higher level. And so very often in the real world, in the, especially in the sales world, <laughs> we see that performance improve overall in Every, the real the, world yeah I yes love it. in the real world <laughs> yes. but no you bring up a really good point is that that we have seen this we've noticed this we have studied this as part of the work that we've done and it's just really nice that this mm-hmm. research ties so nicely into that and if it is confirmation bias like we talked about at the very beginning yeah. of this you know i'm sure that might play a little bit but the research is there the research is true so, so Tim, what are some of the implications? What do, so, all right, this is fantastic. So extrinsic rewards don't decrease intrinsic motivation. So what? So as, as much as we love Dan Pink's book, put down drive, put down the book drive. Well, no, you can read themselves good stuff. They have some good stuff on autonomy there's, and there's mastery. Still, still and, stuff yeah. on it. Let's just, for the record, agree that intrinsic motivation is not crowded out by extrinsic rewards. But let's just start there. And then let's think about what are the what are the ways that we can ethically and positively add extrinsic uh, rewards to improve performance, basically. That's kind of my first thought. Well, I think there's this other piece that you talked about, the learning aspect, right? So how do we design rewards now that we know that the intrinsic part of this is probably minuscule or non-existent mm-hmm. at all? But this idea that can we use extrinsic rewards to jumpstart intrinsic motivation or jumpstart learning around things. And this goes, you know, I did a really quick down and dirty study at a conference one time where I had people. I love this. I love this. People need to, people need to embrace this because this is a fantastic little, little piece of research. So we had a stationary bike that was hooked up electronically to this, this tower of lights that lit up. I think there were six lights on there total. And, you know, if you pedaled slowly, you could light up one light and then you had to do harder and faster to light up two, three, four. And by five and six, 
there was some effort in it, right? Like five it wasn't and just, six, it was really effortful, right? Yeah. And yeah. so we had the setup. It was going, and it was we had it for half a day, and hundreds and hundreds of people walked by, and nobody. I didn't know. I think we had two or three people say, Hey, what, what is that? And we told them, and then they asked if they could ride it. And we said, yeah, sure. You know, come on in. It was, we were talking to them. And then day one, half day, halfway through, we started offering t-shirts. Okay. You get a free t-shirt because we finally got the t-shirts in. So we offered a, which is an extrinsic reward, extrinsic reward. Right. Yeah, okay. And then we had a line, we had a freaking line of people to get <laughs> on the bike. So this is the interesting part though. So that, that's great. Right. We, we know that. All right. No, you may not have intrinsic motivation to hop on a stationary bike to see how many lights you can light up. But the thing is, is we had the extrinsic. And so that got a lot of people there. Right. We also had a leaderboard, but that's a whole separate piece. But we're going. But how much effort was required to earn the T-shirt? You just like, had so to they get up, on the bike. Yeah. You just had to light up one light. Only. Oh, OK. And guess how many people stopped out of we had 103 people on the bike that we gave away T-shirts to. How many people stopped at one light? I would think everybody would stop because economically speaking, the least amount of effort for the maximum amount of reward. Right. So all 103 should have stopped at one. Yeah, one did. One person, one out of 103. Zero stopped at two lights. And then I think it was six that stopped at three lights and 15 or something at. Yeah. It was under 20% that stopped before, um, that stopped at four lights or less total. And then you had five and six. Now, remember, this was at a conference. People are dressed in suits and yeah. different things. And, yeah. and to get to five and six, you're sweat. I mean, you're starting to sweat. This is not an easy thing. And ultimately, I think we had 46 people get up to the top one. And so yeah. it's a part of this. What So what we took from this is, look, you have we had people who didn't they weren't going to hop on the bike just to see how well they did it. But once they hopped on the bike and they saw the lights light up. Then they said, well, how far can this go? And then it became an intrinsic motivation. How well can I do on this? And so that is a key piece of this. And it was really interesting research anyway. So, so. yeah, let's just rewind for just a second. When there was no extrinsic reward, like two people out of hundreds and hundreds got on the bike. So very, very low response. As soon as the extrinsic reward is introduced, lots of people join in. And then what we see is that intrinsic motivation kicks in, competitiveness, enjoyment of like, oh, it's kind of fun. I'm on the bike. Yeah. And that takes over, which is, which is a really important lesson to learn when it comes to incentives. Yeah. It can be a Kickstarter. It can be a Kickstarter. That's a really good way of thinking about it, right? You can jumpstart your program through something like this. So, yeah. You know, one other piece of this, and, and this is hopefully we can add to this through this, but also I hope this research that Indrano and, and Oleg did, Oleg did is will reshape the public opinion. Because I think yeah. too long the public opinion has had this negative perspective on this. So, you know, that I think is good. Well, we're big influencers. I would expect that <laughs> tomorrow, you know. Oprah will invite us on and we'll, yeah. we'll be talking about this. Oh, God, that'd be Nobody, know, that'd be nobody even remember Dan Pink's book. <laughs> <laughs> All right, get off of the Dan Pink book. No, I, 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 and, yeah, and I'm, I'm with you. I, we, we love Dan. We really do. He's a fantastic guy. He's a very bright guy. He's very research-oriented. And he's a journalist who has who crafted drive as a way to get a specific point across in a wonderful way. Yeah. So, and I will say, I do want to just end on this kind of piece is that look, more education, more research is needed. Oh yeah, Particularly again, Alfie Cohen's book was on education. And, and I think that is a huge piece. If we now know that this isn't true, let's make sure it isn't true around education and kids and different things. But if it's not, the impact that that could have on particularly in marginalized and low performing, you know, schools that if we can offer some small incentives and it doesn't decrease your intrinsic motivation, if we design them right and appropriately and you can get test scores up and you can get learning up and you build on confidence and various different pieces, that's huge, right? And we've talked about sales performance. I mean, my God, I mean, you think about how you can use this again, ethically within sales, uh, just huge stuff. So absolutely. 
Okay. So that should probably wrap it up. So my key takeaways from this conversation, Tim, is for me, again, uh, that in the long term, incentives don't really have a negative impact on intrinsic motivation. Just like we always said, but yes, it's here. It's in a paper. Finally, (laughs) peer-reviewed papers make make a world of difference. Okay. So there is a dip in performance after an incentive is removed, but it is only temporary, right? And this dynamic effect of an incentive only lasts for a short period of time and then bing performance rebounds that's rebounds that's which is yeah. you know one of my favorite stats in basketball by the way you know rebounds. but yeah but nobody really cares about rebounds but man it's, it's an because important part of the game really are, are they really that important they are <laughs> in my opinion again there you go see we need somebody to write a research paper on that the on importance rebounds. of rebounds and how they get overlooked all right so companies and leaders you don't have to lose any more sleep over this you don't have to yeah, you think yeah. anybody's losing sleep over this? Well, I hope. I, well, I <laughs> I lost sleep over this. Maybe so. Maybe I don't have to lose any more sleep. You over don't this. have to lose any more sleep over this. And listeners, you don't have to lose any more sleep over this. And with that, we hope that you get an incentive. You feel excited and rewarded by this week's episode to go out and find your groove. <laughs>